Right, good morning again. I'm Sean, the lead pastor here at Sycamore. We're working our way through the book of Esther, and this morning we're going to be in Esther chapter 8. It's printed for you on page 10 in your bulletins. Of course, you're welcome to turn there in your smartphones, your own Bibles. And as you're turning there, let's go to God together in prayer. And gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us in speech, that you have chosen to show us who you are, that we might know your truth. So, Father, we pray that you would indeed open this text up to us this morning, that we might know Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're working our way through the book of Esther, and I want to tell you another quick story about our boy Xerxes to get going. So Xerxes is the king of Persia, the emperor of Persia, and Esther is his queen, if you haven't been with us for a while paying attention. And this book looks at the interaction of these two and how the empire that Xerxes represents is trying to destroy God's people, but sometimes they're doing it overtly, sometimes they're doing it covertly. And to help you understand this interaction, I want to tell you another quick story about our boy Xerxes. So first thing I want to do, I'll show you a map here real quick. So this is called the Dardanelles Strait. You've got Turkey there. You've got, on the other side, you've got the Greece, Greek peninsula over there. So the modern-day city of Istanbul is at the very top of this strait. It was Constantinople, but now it's Istanbul. And before it was even Constantinople, Way back in history, this whole strait was called the Hellespont. And here's what's, why I'm telling you this. Because if you, Persia is over here, and Europe and Greece is over here. So if you're Xerxes and you want to invade Greece, like he did between chapter 1 and chapter 2, you've got to get across this body of water. So what he did is he had his engineers come up with this. Next slide, please. They built a gigantic pontoon bridge across this thing. One of the moder- uh, a marvel of ancient engineering His almost a quarter of a million supposedly strong army, according to the Greek historian Herodotus. They start marching across this, and a gigantic storm comes and just wipes it out. So he has to rebuild it. But as he wipes it out, he loses lots of his army. He's delayed by months. And so Xerxes, being Xerxes, decides to respond by doing this. I don't know if you can see this. is the highest quality picture I could find of the, the description Herodotus gives. He orders his torturers to get into the water and beat the water. He has them take burning hot irons and scorch the beach. He has what's left of his army, about 200,000 supposedly, line up and shout insults to the strait. That'll show it. (laughs) This is Xerxes. He's petulant. He's petty. He's pedantic. That's three Ps. I went to seminary. And he's in charge of empire. This is who runs empire. And Esther has got to deal with this man to save her people. Esther has made her appeal to him. She's won the first part. She's got Haman, the big enemy, killed. But that edict is still out there. Esther and her father, adopted father, actually uncle, Mordecai, have been made the most powerful people in the kingdom under Xerxes. They will be delivered from the edict. They're good, probably. But their people are still in danger. And the land of Israel at this point is part of the Persian Empire. If this edict to kill all the Jews in Persia happens, Jesus will never be born. Something must be done. And God has put Esther and Mordecai in positions of influence as his means of deliverance. But 
they've got to impose on Xerxes, this Xerxes, to get it done. So it's not without risk. And so with that, would you please turn with me on page 10 to Esther chapter 8, verses 3 through 17. This is God's word. This is a long passage. Please stay seated. seated. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, to the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods." On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is God's word. So the text moves on. It reads as if it's on the exact same day as the last two chapters, but more needs to be done. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Esther begged to save her people, but Christ died for his. 
So let's jump in and see what we see here. So first, in the first couple of verses, we see Esther steps in. In verse 3, she comes in and she falls down at Xerxes' feet, weeping and pleading. It's, a, it's an intense outburst. It's urgent. It's desperate. And she has her husband's attention. And then she asks the big question, can you change an unchangeable law? Can, can, you, can you revoke this? Can you save my people? In the Hebrew, it's very obvious, not so obvious in the English. She's actually, the words, the descriptions, the verbs here, she is praying to Xerxes. This is the exact same description used to describe prayer. So she comes before her husband and she is praying to him. And it really is a great picture of prayer. Dear Christian, let your prayers be like this. Come before him. Open yourself up to him. Be real before him. Pour out your honest heart, your honest emotions before him. We come before the great king clothed in Jesus, so there's no risk for us to be open and honest, and if things are going bad, to tell him so. Unlike her coming before Xerxes, it was a risk. And how does Xerxes react to this begging? We see in the next couple verses, Xerxes steps back. He's like, whoa, what's going on? When he starts talking in verse 7, the original is pretty clear. It's an exasperated, irritated response. He doesn't get it. He basically says to her, uh, look, I have killed Haman. I've given you all of his stuff. You've won. What's the problem now? See, Xerxes thinks like empire, and he projected that onto Esther. He assumes that she and Mordecai were only concerned for themselves or their own interests, and so they're good. Why should they be upset anymore? And that little detail, it kind of reads so fast, that little detail there in verse 4 about the scepter shows Esther again risked her life to impose and fall before him like this. Such was her care for her people. If you remember from a couple chapters ago, you don't just get to go into the king's presence and bother him without permission. And if you do and he doesn't lower the scepter, there's always someone standing behind him with a deadly weapon to kill you for entering his presence. Esther did it anyway. Such was her care for his people. And Xerxes cannot fathom that kind of selfless care for somebody. He's almost awestruck. He's like, what is wrong with you? You know, being salt and light to our community today, being what Jesus told his disciples to be, very often is simply about expressing selfless love. It messes people up. True kindness, real love for others without any agenda, without any payoff, it messes people up. Doing good out in the community just to be a community good builds credibility for the gospel. Because there are very few worldviews out there that have what we have. It's like we love selflessly because we were loved selflessly. So we have no agenda. We just want to love and do good. That's refreshing. And that opens people's ears and eyes to the gospel. See, even here, even though Xerxes doesn't get it, he's willing to help because Esther has impressed him. Esther pleases him in this moment. And so he, he basically looks at her and says, okay, um, clearly, honey, you're upset. Um, you know, the law can't be revoked, but um, take that handy-dandy ring I gave to your dad there, and if you can find a way around it, more power to you. Go right ahead. Go, go and prosper, please. We, we good? You see... Does it bug you like it bugs me as I'm reading this? What kind of people would create a system that says our laws are irrevocable? 
mean, what kind of arrogance does it have to be? We don't make mistakes. First time, we always hit a home run, so we can't revoke anything. I mean, right? Empire makes the law. Empire is the law. Why should empire have to change itself? But our culture does it too. I mean, cancel culture is the exact same thing. It assumes that things are irrevocable. There's no room for repentance. There's no room for change. There's no room for growth. If you mess up in the present or if we can dig hard enough at your past and find something, that's irrevocable. You're done. There's no forgiveness, only punishment. Because empire is the standard. We are the standard. We know what's best. That's empire. And since it has the moral high ground, it gets to judge you and cancel you. All who mess up. And like today's leaders who look at that and they bemoan it, they bemoan the tribalism, they bemoan the harshness and division they've empowered. Xerxes kind of has this oh well attitude about empire as well. He's like, sorry, good luck with that. But God has put Mordecai right there on this occasion to be the means of deliverance. And so we see, starting in verse 9, Mordecai steps up. He basically looks at him and says, you know what, you're right. Empire's justice is not biblical justice. So he's going to fix it. It reads really fast, but he actually, the dates they put in there actually tell us that he takes two months to come up with a plan to formulate what to do. Mordecai recognizes there's a difference between importance and urgency, so he takes his time to do something important, to do it right. Once he figures it out, he grabs the king's iPad, they call them scribes, and he does some cut and paste work from the old edict with Haman, makes a new one, and he sends it out, allowing the Jews to defend themselves. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Okay, well, duh. But without this second edict, if they defended themselves, they would be committing treason. So they were pretty much stuck. Either let ourselves be attacked, defend ourselves, and then the empire is going to attack us. What are we going to do? Now they have a means out. It's written up. It's given the royal seal. It's placed in the hands of the Persian Pony Express so it can make it to the ends of the empire in time, and they go out galloping. And I love here how there is no mentality in Mordecai and Esther of let go and let God. We prayed about it. Let's just see what happens. Or keep your religious concerns out of public life. There's none of that. They use all the political, governmental means at their disposal to save their people. They assume that God has put them there with these resources to use these resources for his good, and they do. I mean, it's an amazing providence if you think about it. The Persian Empire, because of this edict, is now officially using its power to enforce the negative consequences of God's covenant with Abraham. God made this covenant with Abraham, and now Persia is enforcing it. I love that. That's incredible. But if you're paying attention, we have an issue to discuss, don't we? We got to talk about it, right? Let's look together at verse 11. It says, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or providence that might attack them, children and women included, to plunder their goods. What do we do with that? I mean, is, is this one of those contradictions in the Bible we hear about all the time, but no one ever actually shows? What about loving our enemies? Is this just that mean God of the Old Testament that we've outgrown? What, what do we do with this? 
Well, I would encourage us to think both practically and biblically about this. So first, practically. The second edict, while not canceling it, shows that the king's heart's not in the first edict. So it's not legally revoked, but it's politically revoked. The regional officials, the local officials are going to recognize, oh, this isn't the way to do things anymore, and they are not going to help, unlike the first edict. So only those who have an intense hatred for God's people will be the ones attacking them. And the Jews are going to be allowed to defend themselves, not proactively go and you know, engage in preemptive attacks. No, they get to defend themselves of any armed group. That's practically, but also biblically. Remember, or if you, maybe if you weren't here for the first time, learn, Haman and Mordecai are part of a bigger conflict. Saul, Mordecai's ancestor, was supposed to deal with and wipe out Agag, Haman's ancestor, a long time ago. Just to refresh your memory, let's look together at 1 Samuel chapter 15. have it here for you. This is him talking to Saul. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So way back in the Exodus, when the people were first entering the land, they asked permission to pass through the land of Amalek. They said, we're not going to stop. We just need to pass through. And Amalek not only said no, but he attacked them and almost wiped them out. And God rescued them. And then God says, I'm going to remember that. And once he got a king, he did. He says, you know what? They attacked my infant people. Go get them. So Saul took the army, he went to go get him, and, he, and unlike other things where, yeah, we conquer, we kill you, we take your stuff and plunder because it's about us and our expansion, God said, no, 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 this is about justice. You don't get to take their stuff. Burn everything. This is not about plunder. So Saul started this, and Saul was like, but their stuff is so shiny. And so he kept it. He rejected God's command, so God rejected him. But even before all of that, these two families are part of an even bigger conflict that theologians call the enmity of the seeds. Look, one, one more quick verse. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after what we call the fall into sin, God comes and he pronounces judgment, and he's talking to the serpent at this point. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God makes this promise to the serpent, who is, the, who is Satan at this point, and he says, I'm going to bring someone who's going to kill you, who's going to destroy you. The he of Genesis 3.15 is coming, and the entire Old Testament is Satan using whatever resources he can get his hands on to try to stop that he from coming. And right now we see he's using Persia to try to stop that promise from coming about. He's using Persia to stop the birth of Jesus. And so because of that, this edict allowing them to kill their enemies is, falls right in line with biblical theology. Now I say that, I recognize that is a very religious answer. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it's very unconvincing. You still see violence, you still see killing women, you still see children, and it just seems pretty harsh. But even in terms of what I would assume your own worldview is, the Jews have the moral high ground here because they are an oppressed ethnic and religious minority defending them, uh, themselves against armed systemic oppression. 
How can anyone have a problem with them defending themselves against that? But since I said that violence is part of this, that God is using this violence to enforce his covenant, we, we have to ask another question. Does that mean that we get to do this as well? Do we get to, Christians are allowed to call a jihad on unbelievers or anybody we disagree with? No, because the Redeemer has come in Jesus Christ, and he has absorbed the wrath of God for our sins. Man, I know I've talked about Xerxes and Persia and Istanbul and biblical theology. Wow. If you hear nothing else, hear this, okay? Since Jesus subjected himself to violence for us, we never subject anyone to violence for Jesus. And if your Christianity makes you think you get to do violence in Jesus' name, that is not Christianity. You are mocking the suffering of Jesus and borderline blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus suffered violence for us, he never asks us to do violence for him. Jesus himself said, Matthew 5, 44, famous verse, we say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The ancient pastor Paul in Ephesians 6 said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't do violence against people, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is how we do battle. Because of the work of Jesus, Christians now engage our adversaries with love. And we fight against the real enemies, which is not people, but these spiritual forces opposed to God. I know it's so much easier to deride and to hate on those, those who look down on us because of our faith. I know. And I know how easy it is to get angry at the blatant, condescending hypocrisy of cultural leaders. Man, I, I get you. I, 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 I almost throw my phone at least twice a day reading through the news. Trust me. But in this battle, our leader hasn't left us attack orders. He left us a plan to make enemies into family. One more Bible drill, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, famous verse. What is his plan? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's our edict. That's what he gives us to fight against empire today. So yes, there's all this violence happening, but then Jesus comes and absorbs that violence and now commissions us to do nonviolence in his name, to conquer by prayer and by love and by service. So as we're walking through this text, we see Esther steps in, Xerxes steps back, Mordecai steps up, and now after empire as a whole becomes aware of this new edict, we see that the Jews step out starting in verse 15. There's this, this really odd transition there, if you notice. You, get like, you have like this bureaucratic, you know, um, it's almost like they cut and paste from an ancient archaeological store, source. They probably did to write this. And all of a sudden they get to verse 15, they're back to telling a story. Suddenly retreated to like a selfie on Mordecai's, you know, Instagram page. So actually, he, he reads like he's older. He'd be on Facebook. He wouldn't be on Instagram. So he puts us on, he puts us on Facebook, you know, and, he, and he, he's walking around showing off his new digs. What's going on here? Why are we having this? Well, Mordecai is at peace. Mordecai is honored. Mordecai is the most powerful Jew politically in the country, and so he makes this public appearance showing to all the crisis is over. He's bringing encouragement to the Jews. 
The last time we saw Mordecai, remember what happened? First, he puts himself in sackcloth because of the calamity that's coming that he most likely had a part in causing. The next time we see him, it's no big deal. He's being walked around the square by Haman shouting how amazing he is. But now we see him under his own power, by his own idea, putting on the robes of his office, proclaiming, showing everybody, I'm here, I'm Jewish, and I'm not afraid. It's all going to be okay, basically. See, and the city rejoices, the text tells us. I love that. There's uproar and mourning. If you remember after the first edict comes out, now there's rejoicing. People are happy. I love how they kind of just give that subtle hint there. When it goes well for God's people, it goes well for empire. And notice, again, it has to be said, God saves his people here through political power. We should pray for God to move. But we should recognize that God very often chooses to use normal stuff, which means he often uses us. So often we have this idea, well, God works through supernatural ways, or God works through the professionals, or God works through the really spiritual people, but not through me. So I'll just wait for something to happen. Let go and let God. See, don't, don't be like Esther and Mordecai were originally, where the situation had to get so bad and so grim before they finally took action. If God has put something on your heart, act. You might be the means he intends to use. Mordecai had learned that lesson, so he finally stepped up and it worked, and everything is going great for the Jews. And notice, it's subtle, it's in there, that God's kingdom expands because of all this, because of this trauma. Inside empire, God's kingdom grows. Look with me at verse 16. I want to zoom in there. It says this, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. I hope that reads a little weird to you. I hope it does because those four things together is an oddity in, in the Old Testament. It's, it's very unique and singular. Something's going on here. Now, from history, I haven't, haven't dealt with this very much. From history, we know there's been a parallel theme in Esther happening along what I've been tracing for you. It, but it wasn't in the text until now, so I haven't really talked about it. Light as a goal, light as a reward, as verse 16 kind of puts it. Now they, they get light That's found nowhere else in the Old Testament. Maybe it's figurative for joy. It could read that way, right? It's figurative for joy. But then why the triple redundancy in verse 16? I mean, this is biblical literature, not NASA, you know, engineering. We don't need a triple redundancy. Why is he writing this way? Something's going on here. And here's here's what's going on. I want to introduce someone to you real quick. This is supposedly an accurate picture based on who he is. There you go. This is a medieval depiction of an ancient guy. His name is Zoroaster. Don't, don't these Persians have the best names? His name is Zoroaster, and he changed the world. You know that semi-religious assumption that you have, that most people have, that light is good and dark is bad, like morally? You know, this means yes, this means, right? You know that, that, that? He invented that. He, he came up with that. Before him, people just didn't assume that. He invented a religion called Zoroastrianism. How's that for a religion, right? And it basically posited that you have light and dark. They're in both balance and they're in battle for supremacy. And humans play a role. And so if good things are happening in your life, you have light. If bad things are happening in your life, you have dark. And so the writer of Esther showing Jews 
outside of a theocracy for the first time in their history, how do you live faithfully now that there is not a Jewish king and a Jewish government, but pagan king? How do you live faithfully? What do you do? He shows them that God's ancient promises are better than anything empire has to offer because God's people, in verse 16, have light. It's not used outside of Esther because what Zoroaster promised What the Persians longed for, God gives light. He gives it. And it results in joy. It results in gladness. And that most precious of all in a shame and honor culture, honor. And guess what? The Persians saw. And the Persians believed. And the Persians were converted. Yeah, I get to say that. It's in the text. Look with me at the end of verse 17. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Declare there is the equivalent of conversion. I know in English it reads like they could be faking it. Not so in the Hebrew. And let's think practically. The edict of death is still coming nine months out there. They don't know how this thing is going to work out. Why in the world would you declare yourself to be part of a condemned people beforehand, right? Unless it was real. Unless you didn't care because you found something amazing and I want that. That's what happens here. God expands his people through trial and triumph of his people. The real world benefits of God's family were clear. And so the people of empire in droves is how I read the text, rejected the prevailing religious ideas of the day. That excites me. Now is a great time to be alive in God's providence. If God could do something amazing in Persia, just think what he could do today. Right now, people are so open about their spiritual hunger. And if we have something real, people are attracted to that. They will want to listen to us. There has not been a greater opportunity for the gospel, I think, in my lifetime than there is right now. COVID has shown people how unfulfilling virtual community really is. I mean, a year ago, we were talking about how how do we get people off of this virtual community stuff? Everybody's so attracted online. Well, God said, okay, I'll answer your prayers. Boom, it's all you have for a year. And people are like, can I please have a hug, right? And it's not just us. If we're in relationship with our neighbors, as they are just dealing with Everything that has been offered to them does not fulfill them, and they're so empty, they're so lonely, they're so hungry for some good news and some good hope and some real relationship. If we are in relationship with our neighbors, this church alone could have an amazing impact in changing our culture. Do we have something substantial to offer? Something that fulfills people's longings? Something that culture promises but can't deliver but we have access to? Do we have that? Let me share with you again the gospel according to Esther. Haman's decree of death to God's people still stands. But a mediator like Esther was able to bring relief. And so too, when God created humanity, he entered into a covenant of life with them, demanding perfect obedience. And that edict still stands. That's why God can't just overlook sin. He demands perfection because he created us under this edict, under this covenant. And we are all under the curse for disobeying that, deserving death because of violating the edict of the king of kings. We need our own Esther, a better Esther, someone who pleases the king, who can plead our case before the great king. Jesus took on Haman's decree for God's people. 
Such was his care for God's people. He lived the life we should have lived. He was perfectly obedient for us when we are not. He voluntarily died the death we should die for our violation, for our sins, for our failures. And in his resurrection, he remains before God to intercede for us. That's the message of Christianity. Not that God is super austere, He demands you to perform to receive his love, but that rather in spite of our sin, he loved us enough to send his own son who himself would suffer an unjust death for us to deliver us from the edict of death by placing himself under that edict of death to make us his children, his family. This is the loving Father God of Scripture. Do you know him as Father? Would you like to? And simply confess faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Place your trust in Him, and He will introduce Himself to you as Father. Let's pray together. My gracious God and Heavenly Father, Your love is just too good. It's almost embarrassing how lavish You are in Your kindness and love to us. Father, we pray that you would once again show us the beauty of Jesus. Show us that in him we have light. That in him we have joy and gladness and honor. Everything our culture desires you give us in Jesus Christ because you love us. Thank you for saving us from our sins and making us your family. And Lord, we pray even now that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and portrayed as crucified for sinners and raised for our life, that you would be true to your promise that as he is lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. Lord, would you expand your kingdom even now as you did in Esther, that people may declare themselves your family. And we ask that you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, would you please stand? Let's confess together in song that Christ is our only hope in life and death.